I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. My brief time as a waitress, I worked at a restaurant that served only, like, dessert cocktails, and every single one of them was served in the shallowest martini glass you can imagine. (laughs) It was basically a plate on the end of a stem. And... I was so bad at this, and I don't think I ever didn't spill a cocktail, <laughs> and it was a nightmare. And then one day I went to work and discovered that the restaurant had shut down, and I was like, you know what? Good, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> this is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. And today we're climbing back in the salad spinner for a year-end edition. It's a rapid-fire roundtable discussion of the biggest, strangest, and most surprising food stories from the past year. I can't do something like this alone. You know that. So joining me in the spinner are two very special guests. First, here in New York, we have Jaya Saxena, correspondent at Eater, whose essay about the future of food was in this year's Best American Food Writing. Congrats, Jaya, and hello. Hi, thank you so much. And in L.A., we have our old friend Zach Stafford, one of the hosts of the podcast Vibe Check. You've heard him here on the podcast with his friends from Vibe Check. Earlier this year, we went deep on Chipotle bowls along with some other very pressing issues. Hello again, Zach. Hi, thank you for having me, and thank you for making Chipotle a part of my life forever. (laughs) (laughs) Was it not already? It was. (laughs) Later on, we're going to get into some of the more absurd and silly stories of the year. I'll even subject both of you to a lightning round. But before that, let's start off with some of the biggest food stories of the year. All right, it's time to crank up the salad spinner. Jaya, let's start with you. What's your pick for the biggest food story of the year? I think the biggest food story, or at least maybe the biggest food trend, is we really hit peak maximalist dining. You know, this was something that was really starting the last couple years, but I think it came to a head this year in a way that maybe people are starting to get sick of it. You look at so many restaurants that people are talking about, and it's these things that have, you know, almost really absurd presentations. It feels like everything is being served tableside. Everything is designed to film on TikTok. You know, you have cocktails being made with 18 different ingredients. Everything was just big and loud and weird. Uh, and and that was the vibe. Zach, have you seen this trend? Oh, yeah. I think it's just feeding into this long-standing trend that we've all decided that we're marketers for f- restaurants at all times, and the restaurants are responding accordingly, where they're creating these really dazzling visual meals that you're supposed to take a picture of and promote and get out there in the world, but don't always taste that great. Yeah. This is not just like a trendy, fancy restaurants in major cities trend. Like I've seen this out in the distant suburbs of Long Island where I live. I was at a a place called The Last Word in Huntington that had every drink involved some sort of like 
two to three step process. There was like a, a, a giant beaker full of like, it looked like dry ice, but then I heard it was like cucumber foam or something <laughs> that was being poured. There was another drink that came with like a sprig of rosemary that was half on fire, which set off my allergies. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun. I do like, like, I'm sure that you're right that part of this is just sort of, hey, let's get people to put this on social media. But I do wonder if there's also some other sort of commentary on like where we're at in culture, you know, for a long time we were talked about there was a move away from fine dining that was sort of towards comfort food. Mm-hmm. And it was very much like, you know, you could go out to a nice restaurant, but you'd still be wearing jeans and eating mac and cheese and fried chicken. Then there was COVID and that was just sort of like bleak all around. Um, and now it seems like this new phase says something about where we're at, Jaya. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, quote unquote, post-pandemic, you had a lot of people who really wanted to go out, who really wanted to experience something that they were not getting cooking in their own home. They wanted something big and new and that that felt like, yes, I have to go out. I have to be in this specific space to experience it. I do think that really was sort of this uh, pandemic thing where people are saying, nothing gets set on fire in my house when I'm cooking. Right. Nothing we, we, is... we, want, we want more things set on fire. Right? <laughs> more things set on fire. You know, nothing right. is performed for me. There is nobody here that's composing a dish in front of me except for me. Right, and that's another part of the trend you're talking about is a lot of like table side things like Bananas Foster. They're going to light the rum on fire at the table. I love things done table side. When I was a waiter, yeah. I used, we, <laughs> at Legal Seafoods, we used to do Dover Sole filleted table side and I sold the shit out of some Dover Sole <laughs> and I would fillet that at the table and you put on a big show and people just love it. It's like you're putting on a little show. Zach, if, if you could have something, some dish prepared and presented table side to you, what would it be? Oh my gosh, a big show. I don't I don't know. I can't think of anything. I want to say like some crazy Well, actually, no. I do know. I do know. Have you seen on okay. TikTok? <laughs> there is this bodega, I think it's in New York City, where they make the wildest breakfast sandwiches and they make them out of pancakes. So the, the, the outside is like pancakes and they put cereal in it and they'll just put, it's like everything. I like a maximalist breakfast sandwich. So I would totally do that uh, table side where you make the most ridiculous sandwiches for me in real time and I get to see the engineering of the sandwich. Because Dan, you and I talked about that recently over lunch in New York is about the engineering of sandwiches and how that's yes. like a really interesting a part of what topic. makes a sandwich. So I would love to see like master sandwich makers make me something wild. Oh, I love side. that. I would love it if like if they had a flat top griddle on wheels and and, and they, the, the person who came out should be like making the pancakes and the eggs and stuff on this portable flat top. Yes, 100%. Ooh, that sounds amazing. I just love the, now I'm stuck on the idea of a portable flat top griddle because if I could bring like a diner griddle with me everywhere I go, like I, I would buy that in a second. (laughs) One that I've always wanted to do, I think I might've mentioned this in the show a couple years back, but I still, I'm still on it. Table side Rice Krispie Treats. Oh, yes. Ooh. Because the best bite of Rice Krispie Treats are when you scrape out the bottom of the pot when it's still warm. So I would want to make an individual serving like in a mini all-clad pot on a little mini burner. And then you just put the pot down in front of the person and serve it to them with a wooden spoon. And you eat the Rice Krispie Treat right out of the pot with the wooden spoon. That's amazing. I I would totally go to your restaurant and have table side (laughs) Rice Krispie Treats. I'm like so excited about this idea. That is so cool. All right, let's spin that salad spinner. Zach, how about you? What is your pick for biggest food story of the year? Okay, so my biggest food story is one that 
I am shocked that it still becomes a topic at dinner parties here in Los Angeles, at least. And it's the story of the restaurant horses here in Los Angeles. <gasps> and <Yes>. not only <laughs> the details that came out through the story, which is a story of two people, the owners who were married and their very messy divorce, where allegations were spewed that included one of the owners killing cats, maybe even at the restaurant. Yes, I remember this story. Horses, so it's this hot LA restaurant with this husband and wife owners who are also the chefs. Yeah. And they started filing restraining orders against each other. The husband is accused of abuse and yes, of killing the family pets. <gasps> there's a lot going on here. The family cats. The family cats were being killed. Um, and there's been a restraining order on the husband from being close to the dogs. Like there's lots of animal cruelty stuff that is wild in this uh, the allegations. But what I have found shocking is that LA people love fame so much that they were flocking to the restaurant in the wake of this. Like, I heard this news of, like, cats being killed, animals being hurt, and thought, oh, I'm never going to horses again. But no, the lines were down the, uh, down the block in the wake of this. And I just think it's wild that the restaurant continues to be incredibly successful, even though it's so controversial these days. And there's even, you know, they may be opening a restaurant in New York still. We don't know. But it just is an amazing, amazing story. By they, me. you mean the couple? The couple. They're, they're, st they're still working together despite being divorced and, and despite there being a restraining order in place? The Owners, I, as I looked at the details today, the judge recently, and this was in June of 2023, um, there's a restraining order between the both of them. They have to stay 100 feet away unless they're in a restaurant working together, which can be 10 feet away. So it does appear that they're doing some sort of business together. Uh, unless they're in a place full of giant knives. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I remember hearing that detail that they had this restraining order, but they were still allowed to work in the same restaurant kitchen. And I am trying to imagine... Not knowing what the size of this kitchen is, them trying to dance around yeah. each other, maintaining 10 feet while, like, executing dinner service. And it's just like, why would you want to do this? For my pick for biggest food story of the year, I'm actually going to pick two stories that I see a connection between that I think say something larger. And I would love to hear both of your thoughts. So. Over the summer, Dave Portnoy, founder of Barstool Sports, uh, which he sold for hundreds of millions of dollars. Also, a, a person who has a history of misogynistic and racist remarks and sexual misconduct accusations against him. He's also probably the Internet's most influential pizza reviewer because he does these one-bite pizza reviews on YouTube to get, like, bazillions of clicks and can turn around a pizzeria's fortunes overnight. He has also, I should say, gotten some pushback. The owner of a pizzeria in the Boston area criticized him on camera. They got into a heated argument that went viral. Our friend Kenji Lopez has also publicly criticized Portnoy on social media for his history of sexual misconduct allegations. Now, in September, Dave Portnoy put together a pizza festival where he publicly cursed out Kenji, as well as the Washington Post for writing negatively about him. The pizza festival was heavily attended by his many fans. So that's the first story. Dave Portnoy, the pizza influencer. Also this summer, the New York Times put out a story about some men who feel cocktail glasses are too feminine. <laughs> <I'm sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. This is apparently bartenders are speaking out uh, that some men order a drink off the menu and they don't realize that it was going to come in some sort of a long stemmed with an umbrella on it or whatever else. It's going to be too colorful. They have actually sent it back and asked it to be transferred to a different glass, usually a rocks glass, which is kind of like oh your most God. basic looking glass, um, because that, I guess, makes them feel less threatened. 
Um, Straight men get a real problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like holding stem glassware is not ma- what? <laughs> this is so yeah. dumb. I, I know. It's it's there's a lot to, there's a lot to unpack in this article. It was also and it was all these sort of like twenty something year old finance bros who are being quoted. What year is it? Yeah. <laughs> the trend that I see though emerging with these two articles is an emergence of a new breed of person in the food world that I would call like the foodie bros. Mm. There are foodie mm-hmm. bros now. I think it's funny, the the idea of the foodie bro, because I also do think that this is something, right, that you can tie back. There is a history of this. I often think of my first encounter with what could be named a foodie bro is sort of in that early 2010s, like, epic bacon space is what I tend to call it. Right, like how much bacon can you pile onto this dish? Exactly. You had these men who were really into food, but they were really into food in this specific way where it's like, we want meat on meat, we want bacon on everything. If men are cooking something, it's going to be intense and big and full of meat and cheese and, you know, we hate salads and (laughs) that sort of thing. But doing it almost in this foodie way of, like, we're going to obsess over charcuterie. Mm -hmm. We're going to get the best quality bacon or beer, you know, the whole craft beer movement. We're going to be really refined cavemen. Right. I think you, you found a lot of men in that space. And it's not everyone who is into craft beer, and it's not everyone who is into bacon, but there was that strain. You know, you said that some of these guys are like 20-year-olds. I think at a certain point, you are always going to have 20-year-old men who, <laughs> you know, bring this energy <laughs> to whatever they're doing. And, you know, I'm going to cross my fingers that a lot of them grow out of it, but like I don't think they do. I will say this may be a controversial statement and has nothing to do with masculinity. I'm just going to say that I think long stem glasses are not that great. <laughs> okay, so like the, the concept of them is that you're going to hold the drink by the stem so that your hand isn't touching the bulb part where the liquid is, and that way you won't warm the drink. It'll stay cold, right? That's the whole design point. But when you hold the stem of the drink, if the glass is full, it's very top-heavy. It's hard to yeah. keep it balanced, and yeah. it is, to me, like uncomfortable. Like it's, like it's stressful to hold it in my hand. So I always end up holding it by the bulb part of the long stem glass, which defeats the whole purpose of the stem. I will agree with you, say they're poorly designed because they're not focused on, you know, not letting things spill or, you know, not whatever, all these other issues. But what I love about them is that they're really beautiful and it's stunning. And when you're having a cocktail, you should feel sexy. You should feel cool. It should be something that's thoughtful and it shouldn't be something you're just slamming back and forth like you would do in a rocks glass. So I love how non-functional they are. Sit down. Sit at the bar. Enjoy the martini. Sit in a place where you don't have to be, like, using your hands and moving around. I like them. I don't want to change them. Long live the martini glass and its feminine skin. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's spin the spinner. So we've covered some of the biggest news in food this year. Let's cover one of the biggest stories in drinks. Now, Mm -hmm. we already talked about Starbucks announcing that they're going to be changing their ice. We did a whole episode on ice this summer. But in March, Starbucks also unveiled their olive oil coffees with some notable side effects. Is that right, Zach? (laughs) Yes. Yes, there are uh, very notable side effects. So in L.A., where I live, 
they rolled out the olive oil, I think, first to market, uh, or they were testing it here, and it was everywhere. I go to Starbucks a lot just because it's a drive-thru and we drive, and there was some news, I think it was on Reddit or somewhere, uh, in the week after that this started happening, where people were reporting that they were having to go to the bathroom much quicker than they have ever anticipated because olive oil mixed (laughs) with coffee makes you go number two pretty fast. So that's the uh, weird, you know, uh, I guess fallout, which is not a good word to use of of drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Jaya, thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, I remember covering this when it was first announced. I got a press release from Starbucks about it, and I went and looked into it, and I just— I immediately had the thought that it was going to have the effects that it turned out having. So I am very proud to have been right about that. (laughs) Just talking to my coworkers, we're all like, this is a bad idea, right? This is going to make you go to the bathroom very quickly. Coming up, if it hasn't gotten weird enough already, it's going to get weirder. We're going to talk about some of the strangest food stories of the past year, and then the lightning round. Zach, Jaya, you'll stick around? Yeah. Yeah. All right, we'll be right back. It's time to open up a can of advertisements. In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook, and now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in like in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, a smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the choice hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com where travels come true. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast They drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine, and yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. 
And Bogle Vineyard says so many different kinds of wine, whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. They got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I feel great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Last week on the show, I talked with Fuchsia Dunlop, the British cookbook author who spent much of her career exploring the food of China by immersing herself in different regions for years at a time. Still, she says for a long time, even though she spoke the language and lived among locals, she still ate like a European. I always ate everything very politely. And I would go out for hot pot and my friends would order goose intestines and huang um, hu, which is actually the rubbery aortas of pigs and cattle and all these other rubbery, slithery things. And so I would eat them. But as far as I was concerned, it was just like eating rubber bands. I mean, what was the point? I had no pleasure. I was just doing it out of duty. Fuchsia tells me about the moment she realized she'd finally gotten out of that European mindset. She also tells me what Westerners misunderstand about Chinese food and how she's seen the country change over the past 30 years. That one's up now. Check it out. And make sure you listen all the way to the end of this episode because you're not going to want to miss my conversation with Chef Darnell Reed at Luella's Southern Kitchen in Chicago who talks about a fantastic holiday dish, duck confit, that gets a major boost in flavor from Tony Sachery's Creole seasoning. So listen to the end of the episode for that conversation. All right, let us return to the Salad Spinner Year in Review. I'm back with Jaya Saxena, correspondent at Eater. Hello again, Jaya. Hey, how you doing? And hello again to Zach Stafford, one of the hosts of the podcast Vibe Check. Hey, Zach. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, let's spin the salad spinner. Does one of you want to have a turn to spin the spinner? Jaya, why don't you spin it? All right, let's go. In June, McDonald's created a new campaign for Grimace's birthday, a purple Grimace shake. TikTok got involved. Users began making short horror films of things going bad after ordering a Grimace shake. And then in another twist, Grimace has been embraced as a queer icon, apparently. Zach, you first. Uh, did you try the Grimace shake? And, and where do you stand on Grimace? No, you know, as a fellow member of the LGBTQ community, I 
did not go to McDonald's to try his Fellow meaning you and Grimace. Me and Grimace. Um, we did not, I did not try the shake, but I did support from afar. And I love the visibility that Grimace has given us as a, as a queer icon. Uh, but I, I don't go to McDonald's that much, but it looked like a very uh, colorful beverage that you could drink and would stain everything in your house if you had it. <laughs> Jaya? Also, as a queer person, I did not try the Grimace <laughs> shake, but I I love Grimace as a queer icon the same way that, like, Gritty is a queer mm. icon. Gritty's the, the mascot of the Philadelphia Flyers hockey team, is that right? Yep. Right. And so, you know, just anybody that sort of uh, is, like, vaguely menacing but in a fun way, that seems to be, <laughs> you know, where my queerness stands. <laughs> and so I love that Grimace is like that. One thing that I found so fascinating about the Grimace shake is that a lot of people thought that because it was purple, it was going to be ube flavored. And McDonald's is like, no, it's it's great. Purple is great. <laughs> but I thought that was so fascinating that we have gotten to a point with the popularity of ube that people are now associating the color purple in food, thinking that it's that and not grape. Whereas my entire childhood, if something was purple, it was grape. I, I, I Googled what is Grimace supposed to be? Because this is, I'm still stuck on on this. And apparently in 2012, McDonald's official corporate Twitter feed tweeted from their official account that Grimace was, quote, the embodiment of a milkshake, though others still insist he's a taste bud. <laughs> he's a taste bud? <laughs> What? He looks like the, Barney's cousin. Wait, he, this yes. is art, though. The <laughs> the embodiment of a milkshake. This is like surrealism <laughs> brought to life yes. as a mascot. <laughs> it was an interview with the CBC in Canada. Canadian McDonald's franchise manager named Brian Bates said he again repeated the idea that Grimace is a taste bud. And I guess and this, the writer here says apparently Grimace's character alludes to the fact that the food you'll get at McDonald's tastes good. But, like, if you're grimacing from eating something, it doesn't That's mean that it tasted good. good. No. Zach, Jai, you ready to spin the spinner? Yes. Yes. Zach, I want to give you a turn, too. We want to, we want to be fair to everyone here. Um, why don't you take take a turn this time to spin the salad spinner? All right. I, how do I spin it? <laughs> <laughs> Just press the button, Just the press giant the button. red button okay. right in Here's front of you. Button. You see it? There. Great. <laughs> Another story that I want to cover that is somewhere between biggest food stories of the year and weirdest is one that you actually wrote, Jaya, with the headline, Angel Hair is Good? Yes. Always has been. Yes. Yes. This now, is important. Okay. Now, I, I am on record as being not the biggest fan of Angel Hair. But go on, please. Summarize your piece for, for folks who didn't read no, it. No, it's fine. And I commend you for recognizing when you're wrong. Um, <laughs> but the thing about angel hair is that I think it was really overused in the 90s. I'm in my late 30s. Everyone in my age range grew up with angel hair being one of sort of the standard pastas in your household, one of the standard pastas offered at a restaurant. And often it would be sort of really overcooked, when you have angel hair that is, in my mind, cooked properly, which is very quickly, that it's still a little bit al dente, and then it's tossed with whatever sauce you have it in, usually a pretty simple sauce, 
it is the most amazing texture. To me, biting between all these little, little, little strands and having sort of that texture sensation in your teeth is really great. And I've started noticing it a little bit more on some restaurant menus, but mostly I've just noticed a lot of people uh, who cook at home revisiting it and going, wait a minute, why did I ever give this up? This is actually great. <laughs> I, look, I, I'm not going to yuck somebody's yum. If it makes you happy, that's great. And look, I take your point that with a very thin sauce, and if it's cooked just right, angel hair can be good. To me, though, it's a design flaw that it is so difficult to cook it just right. It has to be the most finicky of the pasta shapes. All right, now I don't even know what sound effect we're going to play because the salad spinner is about to enter the lightning round. All right, now we're going to do favorite food story of the year. Jaya, what do you got? Yeah, so I am very excited that Sever announced that they are returning to print. I always love their stuff, and I greatly mourned when they ceased print magazine production, but they recently announced that they're going to bring the print magazine back, and I think that's so great because I think especially for food, when you are printing recipes and you're printing these beautiful food photos, having that in your hands and something that you can keep on your shelf and return to and cook from all the time is just such a wonderful tactile experience. Zach, what is your favorite food story of the year? My favorite food story is uh, sadly going to be about Taylor Swift. <laughs> I don't know if that's sadly. I think it's exciting. <laughs> no, that, so, I mean, it, I feel like we just started talking about her. Thank you. I think so, too. She just came out of nowhere. A star overnight. Yeah. Wow. You know? But no, no. I think the reporting people have been doing around where she eats, what she eats, interviewing owners, I think as a longtime journalist, I'm seeing my colleagues go back to the roots, which is like hitting the pavement and really reporting out a story. Because the things I know about how she pays, what she orders, all that is just fascinating to me. I also find celebrities and their behaviors at restaurants, especially nice restaurants or trendy restaurants like Via Corota, really interesting. Um, because then you also get to have this moment, I think, as a fan, and her fans are so rabid, um, that you can go like eat like Taylor and her friends. You can have a date night like these celebrities. So it makes it kind of them weirdly accessible. And also I love when celebrities show up to very public places and try to have private moments because it's so obvious a PR moment. So I just, I love the camp of that too. <laughs> <laughs> is it, it, it? Do you think that it's a PR moment? Oh, 1,000%. Like, is that why Taylor Swift goes out to restaurants? Let me tell you this. She loves the attention in that, like, she can control the narrative. So, you know, when you mm -hmm. go, you call the paparazzi. That's how they know when you arrive. You think she calls the paparazzi and tells them she's going to be there? Oh, I 100% think there's a coordinating that happens there. Because it. I think I always compare her to Beyonce. You never see Beyonce. Even when she goes to horses, you never see photos of her there. But when Taylor goes to certain restaurants, like when she went to Nobu with Travis Kelsey in Midtown, that was obviously a way to get photographed in a certain way. So I love the performance. It feels very early 2000s with the big paparazzi culture of Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan. Um, so it feels nostalgic too, but I, I like it. Jaya, what's your take on all this? Yeah, I mean, I also agree that this is something that does feel calculated to a certain level because there are private dining options all over this city, yeah. all over New York, all over L.A., all over a lot of big cities. There are ways for celebrities to get a good meal cooked by 
famous chefs with nobody seeing them. And so I do think that if somebody of Taylor Swift's caliber is going to be eating out publicly, that is a conscious choice. I do think it was very funny when she went to Via Carota, a restaurant that has been extraordinarily popular in New York for a really, really long time, a place that was already very difficult to get a reservation. And then you had this whole wave of people who, like, thought that Taylor Swift invented Via Carota. (laughs) (laughs) And are just like, oh, the Taylor Swift restaurant, the restaurant that she went to, the restaurant that she made famous. And it's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) All right, well, well, the lightning round got slowed down because we had to talk a little bit more about Taylor Swift. (laughs) It happens, okay? But let's get back to lightning round pace here. What's the best thing you ate this year? Zach. Oh, mine is, have you been to Alamo Draft House? Have both of you been to an Alamo Draft House, the yes. movie theater? I have not. You have not? Okay, so Dan, it's a movie theater, and they serve you food while you're sitting there. They have one item on their menu that I think is a true culinary juggernaut. So it's called the Enigma Popcorn, or now it's been rebranded as the Churro Popcorn. I'm obsessed with it. It is popcorn tossed in butter with cinnamon sugar and churros in it. And I know that sounds insane, and like so decadent, Ooh. it it's is. It's like cut up. It's like small <laughs> yes. pieces. Like are the, are, how are the pieces of churro the same size as the kernels of popcorn? They they do a really thin churro and then chop it up. And there's a bunch Got of it. them. And sometimes I've been to theaters where they've run out of churros and they toss in cinnamon toast crunch, which is also <gasps> wildly delicious. So Zach goes with the churro popcorn at Alamo Draft House. Jaya, best thing you ate this year. Uh, the best thing I ate this year was fried chicken at this restaurant called Doro Bet in Philadelphia. It's in West Philly. It's an Ethiopian restaurant. And they do their fried chicken with a teff batter. Teff is the grain that Ethiopian and jira bread is made with. And it was just the crispiest, juiciest, most flavorful fried chicken I can remember having. Uh, and they have it, you know, sort of two brines. There's a spicy Burberry one and there's a lemon turmeric one. And both of them were just incredible in a city full of great meals. That was maybe the thing, the one bite that I had that I want to keep returning to. And I really want to go back there. Oh, that sounds so good. For me, I would say oh, one of my favorite restaurants in New York is, is called Shuka, uh, Middle Eastern Mediterranean restaurant. And their labna, the labna there. It's an appetizer. They change what they're putting on at different times. I mean, I never had a bad one, but like, it's ruined me for labna. Like that's it, it's so thick, it's so tangy, it's so savory, and it, with fresh baked warm pita, and you just dip it in that sort of like thick yogurty labna. I mean, it's it's a must order every time I go there, and that's the best thing I ate this year. I love good labna. <laughs> All right, biggest food complaint of the year, Jaya. All right. Mine is uh, more and more restaurants developing restaurant subscription services. Yeah. This popped up during the pandemic, right, where independent restaurants launch subscriptions. Like you pay a monthly fee, you can get perks and rewards from that restaurant. Yep. And I understand on some level why this is happening. I think after the pandemic, you have a lot of restaurants who want to ensure that they have a certain amount of money coming in every month. And as with any subscription service, this is a way to sort of guarantee what's going to be on the books. But I just find it so frustrating, the concept that I would have to be a member of a restaurant to go there. But I am like, no, I just want to be able to make a reservation somewhere. I don't (laughs) think that's a ridiculous (laughs) ask. But it also gets to the idea that like so much of, of, 
uh, upscale restaurants isn't so much about the food, it's about the status. Exactly. So like, th- there's already one barrier to entry, which is the cost. But now if you're in a place where there's enough, a lot of people who have enough money, then you need to create another barrier so it can feel even more exclusive to the people who are there. They can feel like they got in somewhere that other people didn't get in. They're a member of the club. And so I think that's also part of what's going on there. But Zach, biggest complaint? Mine would be the normalization of walnuts in every chocolate chip cookie I have. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. It is everywhere. I know everyone loves Levain. Levan, yes, near and dear to my heart, the famous New York cookie company that's now expanded across the country. Yeah. They have chocolate chip cookies that are the size of softballs. They're basically yeah. dark brown and crusty on the outside and basically raw melted cookie dough in the center with walnuts. And I get it. Those cookies are delicious and I like them sometimes. But I will go to the opening of a new grocery store in LA and someone's like, let's get a chocolate chip cookie, walnuts. I'll be at a Whole Foods and they have prepackaged chocolate chip cookies, walnuts. I'm over it. I just want a chocolate chip cookie without walnuts. And I think this has to do with TikTok. TikTok has taken Levain's recipe and everyone's trying to make their own versions of it, which is a walnut-focused one. So now everyone thinks chocolate chip cookies have walnuts, and I think that's bullshit. So that's my take. (laughs) All right. Well, as someone who just in the past few years warmed up to walnuts and chocolate chip cookies— I politely disagree, although I agree. Like, you you don't want too many of them, and you certainly don't need them. Yeah. For me, my biggest complaints are— Beets and goat cheese salads, uh, blistered shishito peppers, um, and drinks in stemware that doesn't function properly to allow you to drink a drink. <laughs> blistered shishitos, we're never, we're never going to get away from blistered shishitos. Those are like the most reliable, cheap appetizer that is a, a little bit fancy. You know, it's not a mozzarella stick. They are omnipresent in a way that I never saw coming. And I always assume yeah. it's because they're really cheap. You make a lot of money off of them. And also, I'm assuming they're pretty, like, low-cal, kind of guilt-free in people's minds because it's just peppers blistered. So I, I don't know. I, I do agree we need to create a new appetizer because it is getting overdone, especially goat cheese and beets. That is just, like, I mean, n- come never on, ending people. everywhere. Yeah, I mean, really, just bury that one with the tuna tartare. <laughs> <laughs> All right, final question of the lightning round. I want to ask each of you for your New Year's food resolution. This is something we do here on The Sporkful every year in our big year-end episode. We ask listeners to send in their New Year's food resolutions. So I want to take a minute here and remind all of you listening, send in your New Year's food resolutions for the year-end episode in which I will also reveal my New Year's food resolution. I'm not going to reveal it right now. I want to know what food do you resolve to eat more of in the new year and why? Record it in a voice memo. Tell me your name and where you're from and then answer the question, what food do you resolve to eat more of in the new year and why? And send it to us at hello at sporkful.com. My existing resolution for this past year, this current year, is to eat more black pepper. And I'm still working on that. I will report back on it in the year-end episode. But I'd like to hear from each of you, what food do you resolve to eat more of in the new year and why? Jaya. Um, Well, I think I had resolved to eat more vegetables when I first thought about this in that I love going to restaurants that put a focus on vegetables, even if they're not a vegetarian restaurant. But I also think as we were talking about stem glassware, I've been into martinis and I want to figure out what my my favorite, my perfect martini is. I think that'll be a fun project. That's that sounds like a quest worth setting out upon. Yeah. Zach. Mine is cottage cheese. I'm just going to lean into the trend, and it is a great addition to a lot of different recipes. I can vouch for the chocolate chip cookies made. Have you had chocolate chip cookie dough made out of cottage cheese yet? No. It is like a viral TikTok recipe. It is delicious. 
And, I saw Jake oh Cohen do one of those. Yeah. Yeah. Jake Cohen did it and I tried it and it now is a staple in my house. So I, it is like if you're interested in a high protein diet, which is like I think the next big food trend that we're going to continue to see in 2024 is people obsessing over protein intake, which is very goes back to the bro foodie thing. Uh, oh, yeah. Cottage cheese is a part of that bro food trend. Yeah. I mean, I love a good cottage cheese. So I'm here for that. <laughs> You know what's good on cottage cheese? You may already be doing this, Zach, but this gets this is a callback to our Starbucks story. Olive oil, really? I did Drizzle some olive oil because one of the uh, second to, to the Labna at Shuka. The other great thing I ate this year was an ice cream at Cafe Panna in New York, which is like an Italian soft serve place, and they had this. It was like a Sunday. It was like vanilla soft serve with chopped dates and olive oil and sea salt. Mm. on vanilla soft serve, and it was fantastic. And I went through a very hardcore olive oil on soft serve. I, I actually went to Carvel and brought my own olive oil. That's, oh, my wow. God. <laughs> that's, that's how into it I got this past summer. Yes. <laughs> Jaya Saxena is a correspondent at Eater and series editor at The Best American Food Writing. The next edition of that series comes out fall 2024, so keep an eye out for that. And Zach Stafford is one of the hosts of the podcast Vibe Check, along with our friends Saeed Jones and Sam Sanders. And, of course, you should be listening to that podcast because it's phenomenal. Thank you so much, Jaya and Zach. Thank you. Thank you so much. Next week on the show, how does the Michelin Guide's star rating system actually work? How do they decide who gets stars and who doesn't? I talk with a Michelin-starred chef, a former Michelin inspector, and a food editor from a city that hasn't received one single star. That's next week. While you wait for that one, check out last week's episode with Fuchsia Dunlop. Don't forget to send me your New Year's food resolutions. Email me at hello at sporkful.com with your name, location, and what you resolve to eat more of in the new year and why. We might just feature you in our year-end episode. This show is produced by me, along with senior producer... Emma Morgenstern. And producer... Andres O'Hara. Editing by... Nora Ritchie. Our engineer is... Jared O'Connell. And our intern is... Julia Russo. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Alex Falk, calling from San Diego, California. Just got done eating a burger with a fried egg and some pickled onions on top, reminding everyone to eat more, eat better and eat more better. I'm at Luella's Southern Kitchen in Chicago with Darnell Reed, the owner and chef. Luella's is named for Darnell's great-grandmother, who always did a lot of cooking, but especially at the holidays. So what are some of your uh, specific food memories around Christmas, the kinds of things that your great-grandmother would be cooking? The main entree that she would make for Christmas or for the holidays, period, is she would always roast like a duck or a goose. So right now, today, myself, we'll make duck confit or goose confit. If you want to make duck confit or just about anything else for the holidays, Darnell has a pro tip for you. Season it with Tony Sachery's Creole seasoning. He says Tony's makes everything taste great. Creole seasoning is so versatile. So it's like a all-purpose seasoning in a southern kitchen. I, I've been finding that like if I taste something and I'm like, eh, it's just missing something. Just throw on some Tony Sachery's and suddenly it's not missing anything anymore. That'll do it. No, that'll do it because there's so many different ingredients in there. So it, 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 it's giving you a little bit of everything. Duck confit with Tony's Creole seasoning. I mean, come on. Oh, it sounds so good. 
But on so many holiday tables, the sides are really the main attraction, right? And Luella's holiday table was no exception. The sides were always your mac and cheese, your yams, your green beans, stuff like that. So, What about gumbo? Oh, so for sure. But gumbo was holidays, but it was also every other day. <laughs> so yeah. Every so, day yeah. is gumbo day. Yeah, so every day was gumbo day. Like, uh, And her gumbo was very special, so... Paint a picture for me when you think about your great-grandmother making gumbo. Like, what, what does it look like? It wasn't just her making the gumbo, but it was a room full of people. The entire family was there. Sometimes there'd be other hands in the kitchen, like aunts. And it was really just a moment of gathering. What's the role of, like, Tony's Creole seasoning in the gumbo? Pretty much like a, a finisher. Something you'll put toward the end to give it the little extra of everything. Because a lot of those notes are in there. It's kind of enhancing what you're already doing with the gumbo. If you want to cook it, like towards the beginning, you can cook it once you get your vegetables already going. Once they start releasing some of the liquid, some of the juices, you can add that. But myself, I add it toward the end. So there you have it. This holiday season, pick up some Tony Sacheries full of Cajun and Creole flavors that pair well with just about anything. Whether you're cooking turkey, tofurkey, ham, beef, duck confit, gumbo, or something else, the best bite you're going to taste this holiday season is the one seasoned inside and out with Tony Sacheries. For more than 50 years, Mr. Tony's has remained family-owned and operated, carrying on the tradition of authenticity and flavor through its line of Creole seasonings, marinades, dinner mixes, and more. All of Tony's flavorful products are available at TonySachery.com. That's TonySachery.com. 